We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect. There are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Ace is a place with the helpful hardware, folks. At Ace, your backyard's right in our backyard, which means we have hand-picked products that are right for the birds in your neighborhood, like premium bird seed, suet, birdhouses, and feeders. Stop by your local Ace and get everything you need to attract the birds you want, including Ace Wild Bird Food, on sale now. Now through Tuesday only, when you buy two 20-pound bags of wild bird food, get a third bag free, only at Ace, the helpful place. Offer valid through February 28th at participating stores. Welcome to the Rotowire Fantasy Football Podcast brought to you by NoHalftime.com. Derek Van Riper joined today by Jake Letarski. Nick Whalen still working on his upcoming book, Hot Tubs of Duval. Uh, apparently he had a little dust up in the hotel in Orlando on the way to Jacksonville. I don't really know what that was about, but he gave it a 3.5 out of 10 in terms of his ratings, which on his scale is very low. Uh, 3.5 is a would, would not recommend to a friend and would not return rating. Hasn't he had hot tub poisoning before? So, like, I mean, that's a tough bar to uh, go even lower than that. Yeah, and I, I think the other factor is, you know, like a bad hot tub experience is pretty rare. Like, it has to be mm-hmm. full of leeches, maybe. Or, or like, just, like, really greasy, dirty people. Uh, yeah, it's just nasty-looking people that are in there that are not showered or anything. Like, that would be bad. I don't know. Whatever the case is, we'll find out about it uh, on the Thursday episode, I'm sure, as mm-hmm. Nick made his uh, first ever pilgrimage to Duval. I'm sure we'll get all the details on Twitter at WhaleN, uh, number one instead of the L, of course, there. Uh, if you listen to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, could please take the time to leave us a quick review and rating. We would greatly appreciate that. It is the podcast tip jar. We don't ask for actual money. We just ask for nice reviews. Um, if you want to spend money, of course, go to roadwire.com slash pod, get a free 10-day 10, 10 trial. You can check that out and then uh, buy the site if you really like it after the trial. No credit card is required. All right, let's recap the first week of games here. Jake, I want to start with the Chargers-Chiefs. I mean, the Chargers were in complete control of this game. 
Keenan Allen went down with a likely torn ACL. His season appears to be over, barring some really surprisingly good news upon further tests. And as soon as Keenan Allen left the game, everything fell apart for the Chargers. I know uh, Joe Bartell covers the Chargers for the site, pointed out that the Chargers were one for eight on third down opportunities after Allen left this game. I think they were like six for six in conversions before that happened. The running game kind of went wonky in part because the team was using more shotgun formations. With that, we saw more Danny Woodhead than Melvin Gordon. On a day where it seemed like so many things early were going right for San Diego, it turned into a complete disaster in the form of an overtime loss at Arrowhead and, of course, the loss of Keenan Allen. It's just amazing how things can be going so well and then the loss of one player can cripple your entire offense. Keenan Allen was running superb routes. He is your go-to guy on third down. I mean, you've got Gates, the veteran here, but other than that, uh, Allen, by far the most experienced and most possibly the most skilled player on that offense. Although it is worth noting, we did see a resurgence of Melvin Gordon, former Badger great there, uh, getting into the end zone for the first time in his NFL career, the first and second time in his NFL career. So showing he could have some fantasy viability this year. But yeah, again, that Keenan Allen news and not looking optimistic. He's probably going to go down. And then that leaves Travis Benjamin as probably the number one receiver. He was targeted eight times, but I don't want to count out Tyrell Williams yet. He only caught two of his five targets, but 71 yards there. He's six, four. He, he seems to be, uh, big and physical enough to potentially get uh, that wide receiver two role now uh, while while Benjamin moves up to the wide receiver one. Yeah, Tyrell Williams is worth adding. I think Benjamin does lead the team in targets, and I think we're going to see more of Antonio Gates, at least the beginning of the year, maybe more Hunter Henry as the season progresses. The Chargers are going to have to adjust a lot of things. I think one thing they might do, and it didn't occur to me until I thought about this game for the better part of the last two hours, now if you look at this team, they ran it well against the good Kansas City defense yesterday. Perhaps the run blocking is a lot better than it was a year ago. Why not make the running game the focal point of the offense? I mean, if yep. you can run it effectively, it's going to open things up for your receiving core, and you're not going to have to rely on Phillip Rivers' arm quite as much if you're shortening up games by running clock and just picking up first downs by being efficient at you know 4.2, 4.4 yards per carry as a team most weeks. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this offensive line does look like improved, and I think a lot of that is health-related reasons. We get these guys healthy, a group that maybe has been together for some time, and, and, and I agree with that, that sentiment there. I mean, they ran the ball 32 times between Woodhead and Gordon. I thought, like you mentioned, they're a little bit heavy on Woodhead in the second half. Maybe didn't mix things up as much as uh, they would have liked to. But really, uh, as far as running games go, I think uh, the story could even even be on the other side with Spencer Ware being the fantasy darling of week one. My goodness, Spencer Ware, 11 for 70 on the ground. I mean, Kansas City had to throw it a lot because they fell so far behind. They were down 21-3 at halftime. Again, speaking to just how in control the Chargers were of this game halfway through it. Spencer Ware also caught seven balls for 129 yards. He was targeted eight times. I didn't think he'd have quite that level of involvement as a pass catcher. I got to give credit to the Chiefs beat writers. I think it was uh, the Kansas City Star writer, uh, Therese, what's his last name? I remember. I, think, I can't remember his name offhand. But Cover the Royals, not the Chiefs. That's right. You're familiar with the Kansas City papers, but not that particular beat. Nevertheless, he was all over it. The Chiefs beat writer for the Kansas City Star was all over this team as far as Spencer Ware looking like a different player early in training camp, well before we knew that Jamal Charles would miss any time when the season started, said Spencer Ware looked more assertive as a runner. He was catching passes effectively. Kind of just opened up the eyes to anybody who might have seen that article that Ware was getting some separation from Sharkandrick West. And as the preseason rolled along, I think the masses figured it out anyway, but he was on that really early. Mm -hmm. uh, and Ware had 199 yards from scrimmage when it was all said and done. So certainly the chalky play paying off, and if you took him late in draft season, plugged him into your lineup, you had to be happy with the returns in this matchup. Also have to wonder if this performance continues to buy time for Charles. He's still less than a year removed from ACL surgery, so if they wanted to give him another couple of weeks off, it looks like it would make sense based on the output they were getting from Ware in this opener. Yeah, they'll definitely be able to get by with Ware, but note the Chargers have a brutal defense overall, even more brutal run defense. I think the Chiefs are going to have a, a much tougher time running the ball next week when they go to Houston and, and, and play the Texans, so Ware's price is going to go up a lot in daily, and I don't necessarily, I think he'll still be a viable flex if they do decide to buy Charles. Charles more time, but I don't think he's as much of a lock as he was week one. Week one was just the perfect storm of him having a great camp and uh, and and 
Charles not playing and then the matchup as well and then having to be in all those passing situations to really help PPR owners week two I won't quite be as bullish on him but uh, I mean if Charles is out he's still a viable play as far as the rest of the passing game goes, thanks to a 34 for 48, 363, two TD performance from Alex Smith, uh, Travis Kelsey, six for 74 on seven targets, Jeremy Macklin, five for 63, and a score on seven targets. Uh, we also saw a little bit of Chris Conley, four for 43 on seven targets. I mean, really, we saw a rare week where Kansas City's receivers were all fairly productive and i think with kelsey and macklin there's going to be some weeks where both can be good because they don't rely that heavily on options behind those two players think where getting this many targets is sort of an outlier uh, in terms of how they're going to game plan smith throwing 48 passes is an outlier in in terms of how they're going to game plan should be the season high by a, a wide margin when it's all said and done assuming everything goes as planned for kansas city this season uh, let's talk Packers Jags Packers four-point winners in Jacksonville in this one TJ Yeldon getting a buttload of carries 21 carries for 39 yards gets in the end zone 1.9 yards per carry caught four balls for 30 yards Chris Ivory was hospitalized with an illness I think is what they came up with he had an injury before that as well but I think once Chris Ivory is healthy this performance is a pretty good indicator that Yeldon's going to have to share touches. It might be 60-40 favoring Ivory once Ivory's healthy enough to take on that role. Yeah, I, I think Ivory is, is the better third down back and the better overall back. And of course, Yeldon did get in the end zone, but overall stuffed pretty well by this Packers defense. That It's a run defense that used to get gashed here and there, but uh, they seem to be looking a little better. But I'm not necessarily sure if that's a product of the Packers D and their young linebackers improving or if that's just a product of TJ Yeldon not quite making the cut. I think it it's more about Yeldon and the run blocking. Jacksonville looks like a good team. They look like a possible oh, yeah. playoff team the in the defense. AFC. The, the defense, defense especially. Defense is good. And Aaron Rodgers' owners are fine because he had a rushing TD to go with the 199 and two TDs through the air. But 5.9 yards per attempt, I mean, that's brutally like inefficient mm-hmm. for Aaron Rodgers. Green Bay ran it. A total of 25 times, Rodgers, four of those carries. Randall Cobb had three designed runs. James Starks, four carries, leaving 14 for Eddie Lacy, who looked like he had a bit more burst. The long of 28, nice to see the big fellow rumbling for 20 or more yards on a carry. Little surprise he didn't catch more passes. Only two targets, caught one for 17 yards. But just seems like he's got a little more bounce in his step than he did this time a year ago. I think that bodes well for the offense. We saw Jordy Nelson on the field for all but 10 targets or 10 snaps, rather. He was targeted nine times, six catches, 32 yards, and a score. So not the monster game maybe you were hoping for if you drafted Nelson, but in terms of his workload, pretty much was full bore, as Mike McCarthy suggested coming into the week. Yeah, it makes you comfortable with that draft pick, just being the fact that he's the leading target getter. He looked good on that knee, and he was able to find the end zone to at least get you double-digit scoring. Even though Lacey probably didn't get you double-digit fantasy scoring, I think I saw enough from this to be confident if I used an early second-round pick on him, just because I think he'll still have a heavy role in the offense. James Starks only carried the ball four times for just seven yards, so it was pretty largely ineffective there. Lacey could have had a bigger day had he been able to find the end zone on one of those series in the end there but overall i'm not too worried about eddie lacy i think he'll have a fine season and uh yeah plenty of targets for randall cobb eight targets i mean second to nelson six for 57 did have some chances in close as well so assuming he's okay he suffered what looked like an ankle injury in the second half stayed in the game you have to wonder if that becomes more of a problem though as we move through week two Devonte adams becomes kind of interesting three for 50 had a highlight reel td catch on a highlight reel throw from Rodgers uh, 350 in a score seven targets the long of 29 of course coming on the TD also two more targets inside the 10 yard line mm-hmm. which bodes very well for him should one of Nelson or Cobb miss time so I think Adams if he was undrafted in your league I mean I took a flyer on Aberderis in one league if Adams is available I'd rather have Adams and Aberderis right now just stashing away the the next man up in a very good Green Bay offense don't look at this performance for Green Bay and think, oh, this offense is still struggling like it did last year. I think this credit deserves to go to Jacksonville's defense. You could mm-hmm. see the playmaking ability on that side of the ball. They've got a lot more talent there. Rodgers only sacked once, didn't throw a pick, but I think Jacksonville's going to get to some weaker quarterbacks 
and do some damage from a fantasy standpoint. The last note I have on this game is looking at Alan Hearns versus Julius Thomas. Alan Robinson, of course, targeted 15 times, 6 for 72, didn't score in this one. Interesting call late in the game, going forward in the last play of the game. Jacksonville throwing a screen. Instead of going to Alan Robinson, they throw a screen. I think it was to Hearns. Yep. He got bottled up just behind the line of they scrimmage. Threw the and screen behind the line of scrimmage, which is I, I, yeah, on fourth and short. A little, bit. Little, little puzzling not to just go to Robinson. I thought they'd even take a shot downfield to see if Robinson could just get behind somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Julius Thomas five for sixty four in a TD, five targets. Alan Hearns four for seventy five on five targets. I think they can coexist. I think what's going to happen is you're going to have some weeks where they're going to each leave you slightly disappointed. If you had if you had Thomas this week, you're happy because he's the guy who scored. But in other weeks, that distribution might actually be pretty indicative of what the game plan is going to look like. So you're going to have some like four for 30 games from Thomas where he doesn't score, and you're going to be left holding the bag if he was your tight end. Exactly. I mean, Thomas was very efficient in this one, caught all five of his targets as opposed to Robinson's six for 15. I think some of that can be attributed to Sam Shields having an excellent game in the Packers' defensive backs, but these guys are going to be productive. I think there's a little bit of a concern if that defense continues to improve, that young defense, uh, I think they're going to be a lot better this year. And that was one of the bigger knocks I heard on Blake Bortles coming into the year where he's not going to be playing from way behind and have to air it out the entire second half every time. And, I mean, of course, to keep up with Aaron Rodgers and the Packers, he did have to do that a little bit. I don't think we'll need to see that as much, but I still think Bortles and all the three of those guys are going to have some fantasy utility. Talk about the Raiders and Saints. Wild one in New Orleans. Raiders going for it, going for two late in this game, uh, finishing with a 35-34 road win in New Orleans. Really tough uh, day for really the defenses. They couldn't do anything on either side to stop the opposing offenses. Willie Sneed, 9 for 172 and a score. How about Brandon Cooks, 6 for 143, two touchdowns, including a 98-yarder. I believe that's the longest in Saints history. Uh, Mark Ingram led the team in carries and snaps, but just wasn't used as much as I would have expected, especially in a game where New Orleans had a lead at halftime. And the Saints were in control of this game, it seemed. Oakland really rallying in the fourth quarter to come back and get that win. It's it's encouraging that Ingram had 4.8 yards per carry, caught a couple balls for 29 yards, but this is what I fear is going to happen some weeks where even if he's good, he might not get typical like low-end RB1 volume. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I don't want to knock him too much because the Raiders do have a pretty a pretty solid front seven here. It's a very respectable one, of course, anchored by Khalil Mack there. So I think uh, I'm not worried about Ingram. I only own him in one place, but I think he'll he'll have some better games as the season goes on. There's no question that he's the number one back there. I mean, Hightower got four carries. I, that's pretty negligible and didn't really do much with him either. So uh, the running game is fine there. And I mean, I, I really wish that I would have gotten some more shares of Cooks. I, I mean, granted, I'm not disappointed because my decision was always Evans over Cooks and I took Evans and I'm pleased with that but uh, Cooks looks like he's going to be solid this year and and Willie Sneed I mean pretty much all the targets that a lot of people thought were going to go to Fleener went to Sneed and uh, I mean Michael Thomas I guess got six targets as well Fleener very disappointing just one catch for six yards yeah four targets for Fleener I wonder how much of this was matchup dependent maybe the Raiders made some adjustments to become more proficient at covering linebackers that are getting or covering tight ends are getting exposed with their linebackers Mm -hmm. last season that could be a big factor. I, I don't know if you can necessarily cut Fleener coming off this performance. I wasn't high on him anyway. I'm not going to sit here and declare victory on it. I just think it's a, a, an off game for him. I think what you're going to see is a little bit of give and take with Sneed getting nine targets this week. Michael Thomas, six for six, by the way, for Thomas, 58 yards. And then, of course, Fleener, who only had the four. I think you're going to see those three guys kind of mix and match a bit based on how exactly they line up against an opposing defense. So, don't look at Willie Sneed and say, hey, I've got a top 20 receiver on my hands each and every week. I don't think that's necessarily the case just yet. But he's a guy that, especially in these more shootout-prone matchups, when the Saints are at home or when they're facing anything that resembles a weak defense, he is in the conversation as your wide receiver three or as your flex option. Uh, as far as Oakland goes, I mean, a pretty big game from Mari Cooper. Six for 137 on 11 targets. Crabtree was good in full-point PPR. Seven for 87. Nine targets there. Clive Walford. Something of a disappointment because I think he was a common pickup for those who were going without Rob Gronkowski this week. We saw Latavius Murray get 59 yards on 14 carries along with the TD. DeAndre Washington, by comparison, 5 for 14, did not score, only caught one pass. Murray was targeted twice. Washington targeted once. So it looks like Murray has a pretty good um, hold on the backfield to begin the year, maybe like a 70-30 or even a 75-25 split. 
favoring Murray as the starter. Yeah, Murray was kind of a fringe, sometimes a fourth, fifth-round pick even for a lot of owners, but it looks like he's going to return that value very well. And yeah, you mentioned Walford, pretty disappointed. I, I was doing the Raiders inactives on Sunday morning, and I noticed that Michael Rivera, who uh, was a, a part of the offense at least towards the end last year, he was declared inactive, which left Walford as really the only pass-catching tight end there, and I thought in a game against the Saints pass defense he'd have a chance. Not quite yet, so uh, hopefully the Gronk owners get Gronk back here so we don't have to play this game anymore. Bengals-Jets was a good one, 23-22, favoring the Bengals. Both defenses, I think, uh, stifled most of the opposing offensive output. A.J. Green really stood out, though, in this game. 12 for 180 and a long TD catch on 13 targets. Darrell Rivas had his hands full in this one. Looked like he was missing safety help on the long TD catch, so I don't know how much of that you can put on Rivas and how much of that was just simply a mistake uh, as far as the scheme goes, but A.J. Green looks matchup proof at this point. Even if Revis isn't Revis anymore, I think you wouldn't consider sitting A.J. Green against anybody at this point. A little surprised to see LaFell outproduce Tyler Boyd. So for now, Tyler Boyd more of a wait and see than someone you can plug in. I thought Boyd would be more productive in this game because it seemed like he was overtaking LaFell for that number two receiver role. The backs didn't show us much. Jeremy Hill did score, but nine carries for 31 yards. We saw Gio Bernard uh, carry five times for 25 yards, caught a couple passes for five yards, but a very quiet game for most of the Bengals' offense outside of A.J. Green and Andy Dalton, who finished with 366 and a score. Sacked seven times, though, so that to me is a red flag. Uh, We'll see if that Bengals' offensive line can put the pieces back together heading into Week 2. As far as the Jets go, how surprised were you to see Matt Forte touch the ball 27 times and get up over 150 yards from scrimmage? I mean, I, I was quite surprised. I was starting to pick up on Bilal Powell towards the end, just Forte, kind of a, a back that's getting up there in years going to a, a new organization where I wasn't sure if they were going to treat him like they did in Chicago where he was constantly getting targets and carries, but it seems like that was the case. Ryan Fitzpatrick, pretty ineffective overall, nine, 19 for 35, 189 yards and just 5.4 per attempt, so not really Really, the numbers Jets fans want to see there, but Forte seems like he's going to be the workhorse there. And as long as he is able to stay healthy, stay on the field, he's going to be a big part of the offense. I mean, he outperformed both Brandon Marshall and Eric Decker in the receiving department. Decker did find the end zone there. Brandon Marshall targeted eight times, but only hauled in three for 32. Again, Forte, the leading receiver there. I don't know if that'll be a pattern that will continue throughout the rest of the season, but if you drafted Forte with kind of maybe a third round pick, I think is roughly where he was going, maybe early fourth if you, if you fell into him and got a little bit lucky. I think you can feel good about it. I just think you have to look at this performance by the Bengals defense and watch them more closely in the coming weeks because they really kept Ryan Fitzpatrick off balance. 5.4 yards per attempt. Did the two TD passes, but Brandon Marshall held in check 3 for 32 on 8 targets and Decker, even though he scored 2 for 37 on his 7 targets, really just let Matt Forte do his thing and mostly shut down everybody else. So a nice road performance by Cincinnati going up against the Jets in this one let's move on to the bills and Ravens. some big news from the bills coming down monday morning sammy watkins foot is still a problem could miss several weeks could miss the rest of the season they left it kind of open-ended i think it's more of a feel thing as far as where he's at as each week progresses but nonetheless it seems like he's going to miss time which opens up targets for robert woods and charles clay but given how thin they already are in terms of talent at the wide receiver position Any absence for Sammy Watkins seems like it would be devastating, not only to the value of Tyrod Taylor, but also perhaps to the opportunities for LaShawn McCoy to find the end zone. Yeah, I mean, based on how Tyrod Taylor performed and and how the rest of that receiving core, how viable they are, if you're an opposing defensive coordinator, you've got to throw it in the box every play just to prevent LaShawn McCoy. We always talk about Belichick doing that really well, taking away the opponent's best skill that they offer, the best or the biggest threat. And if Sammy Watkins is on the bench, LaShawn McCoy is above and beyond by far the biggest threat that that offense has Tyrod Taylor can do some things with his legs but if receivers aren't getting open down the field uh, that's not going to do him much good unless he can escape and get some rushing yards like three wide receiver sets now without walkings are going to be occupied by Robert Woods Greg Salas and Marquise Goodwin and and maybe there's a diamond in the rough there I think you made a great analogy on XM maybe Woods turns into a, a Kamar Aiken from 2015 a guy that is just he's there he's going to get targets because of opportunities 
but he's not really all that good overall. So I, I'm worried about this offense, and I'm, and I'm worried about McCoy a little bit in the leagues I do own him. I mean, he's going to be a workhorse, but now that opposing defenses can truly focus on just that, uh, it does give me some concerns about his productivity. Yeah, June Cleaver, of course, worried about the Beaver, but also now worried about the Bills' offense because this could be ugly without Sammy Watkins if he does, in fact, miss a lot of time. Keep an eye on Rotowire, of course, for further updates on Watkins' status. On the Ravens' side of this one, Mike Wallace getting a long TD six targets not a, a great performance overall in terms of like volume but efficiency yeah but he's going to get down the field and make big plays and he's got a quarterback in Joe Flacco who can make those throws the last three years he didn't have that playing in Miami with Ryan Tannehill who of course at that time in his career especially was even less experienced than he is now and then Teddy Bridgewater wasn't taking a lot of shots downfield last year in Minnesota so I don't think Wallace is this burner that we saw in Pittsburgh early in his career, but I think he's a better player than we've been giving him credit for because I think the systems he's played in for the better part of the last three years have been less than ideal for his skill set. So I look at him as a maybe like a poor man's the Sean Jackson, but on this Buffalo team, who I think in most cases will have to throw it more than they did this week. This was an ugly low scoring game. I don't know if the Ravens defense is actually that good. I think this has more to say about the Bills offense just not really finding its footing in the opener. There's going to be some weeks where Flacco throws it 40 or 45 times. When that happens, Wallace might push 8 to 10 targets. You're still going to see a good amount of Steve Smith. I think you're going to see more Kamar Aiken most weeks than you did in week one. We saw a little Dennis Pitta this time out, but hell, it's going to be a problem for him. I just look at Wallace as a guy that, in non-PPR leagues especially, might be available at like 12 team three receiver leagues he's on the fringe now for me as a third receiver option and at least maybe a flex consideration if it's a high scoring matchup yeah he's someone that absolutely needs to be considered and and you know ben or mike wallace has been around for for such a long time that sometimes people think he's way past his prime he's just an even 30 years old so he's kind of on that tail end here and i think he can really see a resurgent resurgence in Baltimore uh, just with how the offense is set up as a whole again we're not going to see as much Kamar Aiken Steve Smith got was targeted nine times but only finished with five for 19 so really getting all his production in, in very in short yard scenarios so Wallace is the guy that stretches the field and I think he has some productive years in it in him what I'm most concerned about with watching this game not necessarily concerned but what I was most interested in was to see the four set Terrence West distribution and uh, four set outperformed West 10 carries for 41 yards 4.1 average where West West, on the other hand, 12 carries for 32 yards. So West did get more opportunities in the offense. It wasn't quite as productive. I think both of these guys are going to have much better matchups next week when they face the Browns. Yeah, I wonder if Kamar Aiken might do something along the lines of what Nelson Aguilar did against the Browns, like four for 50 and a score. Like that might be the Kamar Aiken game where if you started him in week one, you don't have a great alternative coming into week two. I think you can give him one more spin before really starting to panic to see uh, how that turns out by the way this podcast could be so much better if when we mentioned like terrence west we had a drop that was like the wake up mr west drop from the beginning of uh, one of the kanye albums like there we go that would be ideal so i should probably get that and hopefully we'll get sued by Kanye because that would be like a sign of us making it. And it'd probably make the podcast go viral. Oh, exactly. And I think that's something that Waylon can help with us when he returns later this week. I, I know he's all about the sound drops. Probably just melting right now in some Orlando airport hot tub because I assume there are hot tubs in the Orlando airport. Haven't been there in a long time. It's probably changed for the better since I was last there. Uh, but I know nothing more about this Ravens backfield than I knew coming into the week, short of Javorius Allen, Buck Allen, being inactive for this game. I thought he'd be their pass-catching specialist. Clearly, Forsett and West, the two guys vying for value in the absence of Kenneth Dixon. I think if I had to go with the edge, I'd lean Forsett because he was more efficient as a runner, and he received one and one more target. But, I mean, we're talking about flimsy reasoning at best for using one over the other and maybe both can be useful if they split carries again against Cleveland because Mm -hmm. Cleveland was a dumpster fire yesterday they were probably the most disappointing team in the league yesterday by a decent margin too the defense didn't look good against Carson Wentz in his first start Uh, the offense was okay not great and I just have to wonder if a team like Baltimore comes in a week two and just shreds them and puts up like 24, 27 points, even though Baltimore's offense is one that most often is going to look like it did in week one, where they scrape by, you know, try to get into the 
the high teens and play good defense and just grind it out that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to try to work at least one of those backs into a GPP lineup this week because I think one of those two has the potential to go off against Cleveland. Now, Ryan Matthews uh, for the Eagles against Cleveland well, didn't turn too many heads. 22 carries for 77 yards, averaged three and a half yards per carry. So, But I do like the volume in terms of uh, considering owning Matthews for the rest of the season here. And uh, I mean, so the run defense played a little bit better for Cleveland, but I think the four set West combo, one of those guys is going to probably break a big one here in week two here because, but overall with the Eagles, I, w- I was very impressed by how Carson Wentz was able to play. And uh, I mean, granted it's the Browns defense, so you can only look into these numbers so far, but uh, for a rookie coming out, starting week one to go 22 for 37, 278 yards and two touchdowns, not bad for Carson Wentz. Of course, uh, he should be owning two quarterback formats, but you might end up starting to think of him as like a bi-week replacement if you get the right matchup. Maybe I've underestimated Philly's defense. That's a possible explanation for why the Browns weren't very good. They did run it well, 5.7 yards per carry as a team. Not many carries, but it was a combination of Crowell. A lot of those were RG3 scrambles, though, bringing that average up. Well, yeah, 12-5-3, but Crowell got 5.2 yards per carry. Duke got 7.3 on his three carries, which if you're a Duke Johnson owner, you're just ticked off right now because it's not shaping up to be what you expect it to be. The question, I think, in Cleveland is a twofold. One, how much is the offense just struggling because they don't have a true top wideout? And two, how much of this is on Robert Griffin? And he's 12 of 26 for 190 yards, 7.3 YPA. It's not bad. He got picked off once, got sacked three times. The top receiver is a rookie. The number two receiver right now was a quarterback in college who's still learning the position. Terrell Pryor made a big play in this one, three for 68, had a long of 44. I just think once Josh Gordon gets back on the field, that will change a lot. But where was Gary Barnage yesterday? Like, how do you not find Gary Barnage for eight targets, like six for 70, six for 80? Like, that to me just seemed like the missing element from the watered-down version of Cleveland's passing game that we expected to see in the absence of Josh Gordon. Yeah, exactly. To drop back 30, 32 times and not even look Barnage's way once. Again, now now maybe there could be some sort of injury or something in play. Who knows? I guess we'll uh, see another reason to stay tuned to Rotowire all week just to double-check, but Barnage was being taken as a top tight end, top 10 tight end, usually a tight end one, and I mean yeah, he's 31 years old, but I mean, 6'6", 250, you think that's going to be a quarterback's best friend in a relatively inexperienced offense, at least in terms of pass catchers. You, you, again, you're talking about the rookie and the college wide out there, so maybe Barnage turns it around there, but you're also going to have to monitor RG3 status this week. He's going to go on, undergo an MRI on his shoulder. If uh, there's anything that we've learned, it's that he still doesn't know how to slide. Yeah, non-throwing shoulder, at least, so it seems like the kind of thing he'd be able to maybe play through, but we'll see what the test results reveal. I mean, not if he keeps taking those hits, though. Yeah, I mean, he looked good as a runner still, which I think bodes. I mean, the legs were a problem yeah. for him for a while. His legs are healthy. I think that's a really good sign, but definitely a disappointing week one if you are a Browns fan, which is a feeling you're probably all too familiar with. You mentioned Ryan Matthews, not brutally efficient. Didn't catch any passes, but 22 carries, 77 yards, also plunged into the end zone. We'll see if Cleveland's front, maybe their run defense is actually decent, but I'm not convinced yet. We need to see more. It's still very young. Yeah, I mean, that, that maybe it's a strength. Carson Wentz played well, as we talked about. Jordan Matthews, I didn't have him anywhere. I faded him because I thought the knee would be a problem when the season began, even if he was out there. Seven for 114 and a score was 14 targets, so 50% catch rate. Uh, but it looks like he's just fine to be their number one receiver. Zach Ertz is banged up, we found out. Six okay. for 58, seven targets. Played a lot, was second highest targeted player on the team. But he's got a rib injury. He could be in danger of missing some time, which suddenly makes Nelson Aguilar more appealing because it seemed like he was much more involved than Doriel Green-Beckham, at least to begin the year. Maybe that doesn't hold up all season, but 4 for 57 and a score on five targets for Nelson Aguilar with a new coaching staff, not the coaching staff that wanted him out of USC in the draft last year, new coaching staff in place. That bodes well for his chances of stepping up if Ertz misses time. Yeah, he could absolutely be a week two sleeper there. I mean, it's going to be pretty gutsy to actually throw him in there and use him. But I guess we'll see Jordan Matthews, of course, the unquestioned number one. Uh, there is a, a little bit of drop concerns. I mean, he, he doesn't seem to have ironed those issue, issues out yet. I mean, he could have had a, maybe a 150, 160 day if he alleviates the drops there and, and becomes just a little more efficient. Maybe that'll come. Who knows? But overall, good day for Carson Wentz and and and, and this Eagles team as a whole. And But again, you have to look at the opponent and what Cleveland's been able to do here. So you're staring at your weekly fantasy opponent for week two, and you're thinking to yourself, I would love to challenge just one of his players, not his entire team but your fantasy sports service doesn't allow you to do that. 
Well, now you can on the all-new No Halftime app. The No Halftime app allows you to create individual challenges using players or teams. For example, you can pit Beckham versus Brown or Cam versus Rogers or even Ezekiel Elliott versus Todd Gurley. Creating a challenge takes seconds, and accepting challenges is even easier. No halftime challenges can be private or public and created for the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, PGA, and other sports. Visit NoHalftime.com for more information and to download the No Halftime app for your iPhone or Android device. Use the promo code ROTOFF16 and receive a 100% bonus up to $25. Real money and fantasy supremacy awaits you. No halftime where the fantasy sports season never takes a break. Join today and get started. Let's talk Vikings-Titans. DeMarco Murray really doing a lot yesterday to kind of pull in the believers. I thought it was a tough matchup for him against Minnesota. Uh, He scores twice as a receiver, including one flip into the end zone that we saw all over the highlights throughout the day yesterday. Had a 13-5 carry edge over Derrick Henry. More efficient than Henry by comparison. And again, the 3.2 yards per carry for me, not indicative of Murray's skill. I think Minnesota is a legitimately strong run defense this year. Yeah, I mean, I have a league where I own both Mariota and DeMarco Murray. Murray was a fourth-round pick about what I expected. And uh, Mariota, on the other hand, was someone that slipped into like almost the 10th round of my league, and I needed a quarterback, so I jumped on it actually turned out pretty well. I'm going to win that week because one of those two touchdowns by Mariota went to Murray. And uh, I mean, yeah, okay, so Murray only had 3.2 yards per carry, but honestly, this Minnesota Vikings defense could be a top five defense overall. And I think they're definitely going to be a top five fantasy defense because of this head start they have here with two defensive touchdowns in this game. But the big story in this game, Henry's not quite ready to take a, a significant chunk out of Murray's workload just yet. Also, I mean, Mariota and Tajay Sharp seem to have a pretty nice uh, chemistry here seven catches out of 11 targets 76 yards for Tajay Sharp Uh, I mean he was he got looked at more often than Rashad Matthews he was more productive than Rashad Matthews Tajay Sharp really realizing his value as a sleeper yeah maybe a case where if Matthews is drawing the top corner for the opposing team Sharp is going to take advantage of seeing the two but definitely has a good chemistry with Mariota Delaney Walker somewhat quiet three for 42 five targets in this one I like that Henry caught a couple passes I think if, if this is this, to me, this is a, a small window right now to go out and try to make a trade for Derrick Henry. If, whoever took him probably thinks DeMarco Murray is going to break down, and that's a reasonable, it's a reasonable assumption based on the past track record there. But if you can make an offer for Derrick Henry right now, you want some depth at running back, an upside guy, I think this is the time to do it. I mean, five carries is nothing. You, can grade it, you can't grade any player on five carries. So keep that in mind. I, I was also impressed by Mariota factoring in the difficulty of the defense. Even though Minnesota won this game, by nine, you have to wonder if we'll see Sam Bradford in week two. Adrian Peterson bottled up 19 carries, 31 yards. I don't think you can panic if you're a if you're an AP owner. I don't have many where. I think the amazing thing is that they were able to get enough from Hill in the passing game. Seven from uh, for 103 on nine targets to Stephon Diggs. Four for 65 on eight to Kyle Rudolph. Charles Johnson quiet. Jarek McKinnon quiet. I thought McKinnon would catch more passes. That didn't happen this week, but ultimately Minnesota did enough without AP to get a win on the road, which I think says a lot about their resilience right now. Exactly. I think AP being bottled up just uh, is a product of being quite a bit one-dimensional at the moment here. You know that Adrian Peterson is the best offensive option on that offense. Even at 31 years old, he's the most physical, so you're definitely going to want to stack up the box. Or maybe Tennessee's run defense is a little bit better than people were originally giving them credit for here. I think AP will eventually turn things around and have a couple productive games but I he was a player that I faded in all my drafts this year I don't have a single share uh, because I think we're, there's going to be too many games like this for him to be a first round pick yeah I would agree so it's one of those things where I don't have anywhere because I knew there was some risk but I'm also not averse to the idea of if someone in your league is shopping him and they make you a fair offer mm-hmm you're going to get volume from Adrian Peterson. It's going to happen, and their offense will be better, I think, with Sam Bradford than Sean Hill. That almost goes without saying at this point. Uh, you look at the other aspects of this game, we really didn't see a receiver behind Stephon Diggs step up. I mean, Laquan Treadwell is more of a second-half sort of guy that could emerge. So that and the Richard Matthews, like three for 26 on four targets, two pretty big takeaways from the receiving course in this particular game. And this was one I didn't get to see much of because of the way – Things stacked up. Packers, of course, playing the early game and red zone being on my laptop. I saw a ton of every other game cycling by. I didn't see a lot of Minnesota, Tennessee 
on the Red Zone channel. Uh, Bucks and Falcons. Bucks getting the win on the road. Jameis Winston, four TD passes. Doug Martin dominating the backfield carries, but we saw Charles Sims get into the end zone as a pass catcher. Mike Evans, five for 99 and a score. Uh, we saw Doug Martin catch five balls for 34 yards, so he's not going to be a non-factor in the offense. Austin Safarian Jenkins scoring on his only target, a 30-yard TD catch. They also threw a TD pass to Brandon Myers. Cameron Brait had four targets. If they would just consolidate those looks to Austin Safarian Jenkins, you could see tight end one status in his future. We just don't know if that's going to happen, Jake. But you look at this game, it's pretty much exactly what I expected from Tampa Bay but a little less than what I expected from Atlanta. I, I thought we'd see Devontae Freeman really dominate those backfield touches. He didn't. We saw Tevin Coleman get eight carries to Freeman's 11. And then we saw Coleman catch the ball five times for 95 yards, which I think puts some heat on Freeman as we look at the next couple of weeks. Yeah, the pass catching is really what concerns me. I mean, of course, Devontae Freeman, three more carries on the ground, and essentially it was pretty close to a timeshare here. But uh, but if you drafted Devontae Freeman, you were counting on a couple hundred yard receiving games and a good volume of targets, and the fact that he Coleman was targeted twice more is certainly a bit concerning. Now, some of this could be a, a little bit of a product of matchup. I mean, Tampa Bay does have a relatively tough front seven there, uh, you know, a couple IDP studs on there. But, uh, but overall, this is going to be an interesting situation. I'm going to still start Freeman. I own him in one league where I kind of took a wacky different strategy. For some reason, usually my last draft of the year, I always just like, okay, let's do something different this time around just in case all my other leagues bomb. And that's the league where I own Freeman. But it turns out uh, I'm a little bit concerned about that team in that league overall. On the Tampa Bay side, it's looking like uh, exactly what we were hoping for for Mike Evans. I mean, I know you and I both own a ton of shares. And I tried to pair him up with Jameis Winston when possible. And maybe partially this is due to the Atlanta matchup here but I think overall we're going to see some big-time productive days out of those two this season. Love the way that division sets up for the Bucks, though, especially once you get to the fantasy playoffs. Two of the three weeks, the fantasy playoffs, weeks 14 and week 16, the Bucks match up against the Saints. That is exactly what you want. So assuming you get to the playoffs, you are in a great spot with Jameis and Mike Evans. I think this is a good time to go after Vincent Jackson if you're looking for that third receiver, especially in like a 14-team league because he was pretty quiet yesterday. Seven targets, two catches, 18 yards. I think more often than not, he's going to be right there with Mike Evans in terms of the number of looks. I mean, Evans is going to draw so much attention that that bodes well for a player like Jackson on the other side. Not going to be a world beater, but good enough, of course, to fall into the 25 to 35 range among wide receivers most weeks, especially when we start factoring in injuries and bye week considerations. Moving on to the Bears and Texans. The Bears had a pretty good hold in this game early on. Houston rallying back. Will Fuller with a big game in his debut. DeAndre Hopkins, 554 and a score, eight targets, of course, drawing a ton of attention from the Bears. And Fuller taking advantage with a team-high 11 targets, five catches, 107 through the air, and a TD. Brock Osweiler playing good enough, and Lamar Miller piling up 106 yards on the ground. To me, this is kind of exactly what you'd expect from Houston with the caveat that I thought Will Fuller might have to share a few more targets with the other secondary options in the early part of the season. But if this is what he's in store for, if he's going to be first or second in targets on a regular basis, he's got enough speed after the catch where he can make big plays against pretty much anybody. And I want shares wherever he's available. If he's available in my 10-team home league, we start three receivers in a flex. I would go after Will Fuller right now mm-hmm. as a fab target because I think he can be dangerous, especially against some of these weaker defenses that don't have good depth on the other side of the field. Yeah, see, I don't know if I feel the same way. I'd pump the brakes a little bit maybe because he did have a couple drop issues at Notre Dame, and he wasn't the most efficient. He was targeted 11 times, only hauled in five of those passes. But I do really like what he's able to do when uh, when he does get the football and is able to make some things happen in open field. Now, part of this, one of the Bears' starting cornerbacks, Kyle Fuller, was inactive for this game. So you bottle up DeAndre Hopkins, and then you're putting Fuller, who is presumably the secondary option now, on one of the Bears' third-string cornerbacks or something along those lines. So I think that could have contributed to the matchup, but but I can see Fuller being a very productive complement to DeAndre Hopkins, that being said. The other thing in here, Lamar Miller, he's getting the volume that all Lamar Miller owners were hoping he would be getting 28 carries as big. Didn't get to four yards per carry, which is uh, you know not exactly what you want to see, but I think uh, if you continue to give him 28 carries a game, he'll be having some very productive days for fantasy owners. Oh, I mean, he's, if he gets 28 a game, he's going to hit the DeMarco Murray 2014 workload, which would be insane. I mean, mm-hmm. physically, I don't know how many backs can hold up for that, but the bottom line is he's clearly the guy in Houston, and for someone who was constantly, like, 
being begged for more carries in Miami. Like we have to be pretty happy as Lamar Miller owners that he's in a spot now where he's going to be fed the ball on a regular basis. Now, Jeremy Langford dominated the backfield in Chicago. Wasn't efficient, but 3.4 yards per carry against the good Houston defense to me is not a mark against him necessarily. I think he's actually someone you do like right now. I know our buddy Michael Beller of Sports Illustrated was suggesting that Langford's a good trade target right now because Mm -hmm. clearly he's their back. We didn't see Jordan Howard out there in this game. So there's a pretty big gap between Langford and the pack right now. And if you're talking 15 to 20 carries, a couple catches per game, even if he's not brutally efficient, that's going to play at least as an RB2 or a flex option in many, many leagues. Yeah, a lot of owners that got him essentially fell into him and maybe weren't all that crazy about it. So I could see coming after him, but but still overall, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm ready to turn around my original analysis of Langford yet. All this is proving to me is that maybe he is hitting the value of where he was drafted at. Is he going to turn into the stud this season? I'm not entirely sure about that. That's only that's going to be a wait and see for me. Let's uh, quickly talk about the Bears receiving core. Alshon Jeffrey had a pretty standard game. I mean, got over 100 yards, didn't have high volume in this one, but I think that's going to happen more often than not because the Bears were up. They're up 14-10 at halftime, still up 14-13 at the end of the third quarter. They're not going to be a team that throws with a lead very often, but I think when they're playing from behind, you're going to get those games from Cutler where he throws it 38-40 times. With that, Jeffrey's going to have a lot of 12-14 and 14 target games, so better days are ahead for him volume-wise, and even without the volume this week, still got over 100 yards. Eddie Royal doing early season Eddie Royal things. Like week he just, one stuff. just yep. owns September. Like All of his big games, if they happen, either week one, week two, week three. Uh, Kevin White targeted seven times, three for 34 in his debut, and add Zach Miller to the list of disappointing tight ends for this week three for 14 on four targets I thought he'd be more heavily involved so if you went cheap at tight end there's a decent chance it backfired unless you went with the next guy we're going to talk about looking at the Lions and Colts Eric Ebron who I was concerned about from a health standpoint as a result of his injury in the Lions scrimmage at the beginning of the preseason gets a TD in this one five catches uh, on five targets very efficient 46 yards and a score I mean, Detroit's offense as a whole was good. Amir Abdullah was over five yards a carry. Theoretic ran it seven times to Abdullah's 12, so that's something to keep a close eye on. Theoretic scored not only as a runner, but as a pass catcher, five for 63 through the air on five targets. Abdullah caught a TD pass, five for 57 on five targets. Mentioned Ebron before. It kept Marvin Jones and Golden Tate from scoring. Jones went four for 85 on 10 targets. Tate, seven for seven, 41 yards, no TDs. Bolden, three for 35 on three. In terms of distribution, I can live with this. I think Tate will have bigger games even mm-hmm. even against good defenses because I think he can make some plays once he gets the ball into his hands. But as far as Marvin Jones maybe being the number one receiver, the target volume in week one kind of leans that way. And the big test for me is what's going to happen when the Lions face a defense that's not torn to shreds by injury? I mean, like mm-hmm. that's the problem with the Colts right now. They're very banged up on that side of the ball. And I think if you have shares of the Lions offense you're feeling really good today but you need to temper the expectations a bit in future weeks because this is not going to be the norm for this offense yeah exactly I mean the Colts are going to be an offensive target especially for the first month while Vontae Davis will probably be out for roughly a month due to an ankle injury they're just going to have a tough time covering people they're going to be someone to target daily and uh, I mean I think that's why you were able to see the Lions be so productive in so many areas Theo Riddick I don't necessarily think he'll get that same volume and touches I think he saw a lot of third down work towards the back half of that game because the Lions were constantly having this to score in the shootout and and be efficient with running clock. But I do like what we saw from Amir Abdullah, over five yards of carry, getting involved in the passing game, even scoring a touchdown here. It would have been nice to not see Dwayne Washington vulture that touchdown, uh, the, the the one-yard touchdown there for Washington. But, but oh, well, I'll, I'll live it. I, I do have a couple of shares of Abdullah that I'm going to be pleased with here. But, I mean, really what this Colts defense says to me the most is that Andrew Luck's going to have some big games here because he's going to have to continue to score a ton of points, and they're going to need seven touchdowns to win a lot of their games. Yeah, 31 of 47, 385, four TDs, only sacked twice. So I guess the offensive line played pretty well in this one, based on that at least. Uh, three carries for 21 yards as well. Frank Gore, 14 for 59 on the ground. Josh Ferguson went backwards for two on his only carry. Robert Turbin carried once. So it's Gore's job right now as far as the running game goes. But I think a lot of that production is going to come from the passing game. 
Do you think the target distribution holds up? I mean, T.Y. Hilton, 12 targets, 6 for 79. Philip Dorsett, 4 for 94 on 6. Dante Moncrief, 6 for 64 and a score on 7. Dwayne Allen, 4 for 53 and a score on 6. Is that more or less a distribution you expect where Hilton gets about double what anybody else gets and the other three options all kind of split evenly? Yeah, I think that seems very accurate. Of course, you're going to have to get into games where luck is going to have to toss it out, which we already established. We think that's going to be most of them. I think there could be four productive pass-catching options in this offense. Even Dorsett is someone that like, he looks to be heading in the right direction. I might consider using him in a flex depending on matchup. And then, of course, Dwayne Allen. You mentioned a lot of uh, fringe tight ends struggling. Dwayne Allen fortunately came through for a lot of owners that waited a little bit on tight ends. I know Jack Doyle scored two touchdowns from the tight end position. I'm going to say that that's a little bit fluky. We're not going to see that type of volume regularly. And if even one of those touchdowns go to Allen, he's the top fantasy tight end this week. Yeah, the other one could go to Moncrief. I mean, he's a bigger target as well at the wide receiver position. So that's a good sign for the Colts offense as a whole. But again, you got to take this one with the appropriate grain of salt. We don't know how good that Detroit secondary really is. But the Colts most weeks are going to have to air it out because their defense is shredded by injuries moving on to the Seahawks and Dolphins the Seahawks only winning this one by two they were 10 point favorites a little surprised they didn't open this one up a bit more pretty ugly game throughout we saw Russell Wilson get just 6.0 yards per attempt I had a TD pass to Doug Baldwin nine for 92 and a score on 11 targets the backs were the big story coming into the week Kristen Michael 15 for 66 on the ground 4.4 yards a tote Thomas Rawls 12 for 32 good for 2.7 yards per carry with that, I just wonder if we're going to see Rawls take on more touches in Week 2 or if Michael can actually keep him at bay. I mean, Michael was much more efficient, so we got to imagine we'll start to see at least an, an even distribution while these two duke it out for some carries here. I mean, the Seattle Seattle wants to run the ball no matter what, and they don't want to give a single running back you know, 28 to 30 carries a game. They ran the ball 32 times, so there could be room for both of them to be productive, but it's looking at least after week one like Michael has the slight edge. I think the reason why the biggest favorites here, the Seahawks, didn't open it up more is Russell Wilson kind of suffered that ankle injury where he turned it, came back onto the field heavily taped up. When you limit his momentum, mobility not in not only in the pocket but when he's trying to escape the pocket and make more things happen there uh that that just uh is going to really put a devastating effect on this offense and that's why we didn't see them score a lot of points yeah, the injury is an ankle sprain he is expected to play in week two against the rams we'll see if that changes as week two prep rolls on looking at the dolphin side of this one arian foster at 100 yards from scrimmage thanks to three catches for 62 yards bottle up on the ground but that's what seattle's defense does 13 for 38 damian williams carried twice for nine yards jay ajayi inactive left in miami for this one and you have to wonder if adam gaze and company are going to just stick with damian williams as the backup to foster for now because ajayi was still unhappy about foster taking over the job but that's just how the nfl works i mean you have to get past that and if jay ajayi like knew anything about Arian Foster it's that he gets hurt and there's going to be an opportunity there now I realize as a player like Ajayi especially a later round pick who wants to prove himself and eventually earn like a legitimate NFL contract it's a big lost opportunity but it's not like they signed Foster to some five-year deal I mean this is a short-term solution to boost up the position I think eventually we'll see a little bit of a Jay Ajayi I just wonder if Williams is good enough to keep him uh, on the sidelines early on now Jared Slandry didn't do much in this one. 759, 10 targets. I didn't expect him to have a good game. I, my advice was to simply bench all Dolphins. If you had to play Arian Foster, this was about as well as this game could have turned out short of a, a short TD run or something being added to the mix. Exactly. And that and Jarvis Landry had a standard PPR game. I mean, he had about 12.9 points in PPR, which is a, a pretty good floor for him given the tough matchup. So again, back to Landry. Uh, I, I mean, Ajayi, I think, has the skills to eventually get back. And it's surprising that he handled the situation in this manner because it is such a two running back league. But I guess it's Foster until further notice. And if they want to continue this punishment, uh, then they're very well welcome to. Now, I want to see what Miami's offense does against New England. I want to see how their defense does against New England, too, if they can put up a number, uh, they'll put up a result better than what Arizona did in that Sunday night game against Jimmy Garoppolo and company. Because Miami's defense really kept the Seattle offense in check, 3.5 yards per carry as a team, and just a 6.0 YPA to Russell Wilson. I think that's a really encouraging sign, even though the Dolphins came out on the short end of a close loss in Seattle. Moving on to the Giants. 
Cowboys matchup, Terrence Williams, you have to get out of bounds, know the situation. A lot of big stories in this one. First off, we saw Victor Cruz get back into the end zone. Rashad Jennings took over the bulk of the carries. The rookie Sterling Shepard also scored for the Giants. Odell Beckham didn't score. If he had, it would have been a perfectly fine game. I don't really think you can read too much into how things broke down overall. I mean, Still led the team in targets. Still clearly the guy that's going to be the most productive player on this team week to week, so no need to panic at all if you were even thinking about it with Beckham. On the Dallas side, Dak Prescott held to five yards per attempt. He didn't turn the ball over, and I have to wonder how much of Dallas's design was an ultra-conservative game plan. He took the one shot into the end zone to Des Bryant, made a great throw. Bryant just couldn't quite complete the process of the catch as he was going to the ground. Has a tough time with that. (laughs) He does. If he pulled that in, it's like a 28-yard TD added to an otherwise disappointing sort of day. Des owners are probably panicking, but I think you're going to see Dallas open things up progressively when it comes to Dak taking some shots downfield. If teams keep loading up the box, which it seemed like the Giants were doing yesterday, really trying to stuff Zeke Elliott, I think you're going to see some play action and you're going to see the occasional deep target to Bryant. Most weeks, I expect Bryant to get 8 to 10 targets with ease. I thought he'd get 12 to 14 in the opener. So if he gets a five-target game again this year, to me, it's because he got hurt in a game, not because the Cowboys drew it up that way. So I expect things to change quite a bit coming out of this opener where we saw a heavy dose of Jason Witten and Cole Beasley. Yeah, you're not going to see Witten get 14 and Beasley get 12 targets anytime soon. Uh, uh, you know, And all that being said, I think uh, looking at that receiver situation, Terrence Williams could almost be a safe drop at this point because I was thinking, like, okay, contract year, it's time for Terrence Williams to be ready to go. I know he has the ability to take the top off the defense, but the fact that he's not getting much volume, only four targets, and just kind of that bonehead play at the end uh, makes you think that Cole Beasley will be in a more prominent role than him the rest of the way out. Des owners, I'm not worried. If you can put a feeler out and buy low on him, I'd go for it. But uh, I, I think he'll get there eventually. And, and it's the same with Ezekiel Elliott. I think when they start to open things up, things will be a little bit more productive for him. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Zeke's got plenty of better days ahead. He plunged into the end zone on this one. That really salvaged otherwise it's a disappointing day. I was surprised they didn't throw the ball to him more out of the backfield. For as conservative as the game plan was, I mean, one catch for one yard on two targets, I thought Zeke might catch four or five passes this week. Uh, Lance Dunbar was targeted twice. I mean, why not just give those targets to Zeke? That seems kind of bizarre. Alfred Morris ran well in limited touches, seven for 35. So you have to wonder if when Morris is in the game, if the Giants defense shifted a bit, backed out of the box, respected the pass a bit more, and said, sure, let let Morris try to beat us. We're not worried about him breaking off the big play that we think Ezekiel Elliott is capable of. Uh, I think the Giants defense is actually a good defense, and that's part of the reason why Dak didn't put up big numbers in his debut. But I think it bodes well that he did not turn the ball over. Last game of the day, Patriots, Cardinals, the nightcap, it was a good one. And Larry Fitzgerald looked really good, which I didn't necessarily expect. I and mean, we saw him take that that long catch in overtime against the Packers last year uh, and really just kind of give Arizona the win early in that one. But 8 for 81, 2 TDs, 10 targets. It seemed like when I talked to Mario Puig about this on the Friday XM show, the Patriots are always good at taking away one weapon in the opposing passing game. And logically, we thought Bill Belichick would scheme in a way that would take Larry Fitzgerald away, forcing Carson Palmer to take shots downfield, you know, to Michael Floyd, uh, to John Brown. And instead, Fitzgerald just kind of had his way with that New England secondary. Yeah, they essentially did the opposite. Belichick focused on taking away the deep ball, which he did very well. We didn't see very much Jerron Brown or even Michael Floyd in his opportunities there. But Fitzgerald, he just always comes to play in big games. And New England, Arizona, I mean, this is as close as you get to a a playoff game dare I say in week one these are two teams that could very well end up meeting in the Super Bowl again and it would be a very fine game but Fitzgerald always comes big when he comes up big when he knows his team needs him and the Cardinals certainly needed him in this one Uh, as far as other observations on the Arizona side though gotta love what David Johnson brought to the table he's looking like uh, you know a a top three draft pick that he has been Uh, I mean just that that stellar run towards the end when he was somehow able to stay afloat making all these guys miss he was good out of the backfield four catches on six targets for 43 yards so a lot to like with David Johnson. I think he'll return his draft value this year. Yeah, I mean, there was some concern that maybe Chris Johnson would see a significant role. He had one carry, wasn't targeted. David Johnson, 20 total touches, getting over, uh, getting up to 132 yards and a TD. So really good signs for the way he was used if you had any concerns. Floyd was 3 for 61 on 7 targets. John Brown, a non-factor, 1 for 8 on 4 targets in this game. And uh, I mean, that's kind of the way you expect it to go. If you had to predict one guy to lead the team in targets, it would be Larry Fitzgerald. But Mm -hmm. I just think it's going to come and go some weeks where 
other teams take him away more effectively. They gamble and get burned by the likes of Floyd or Brown over the top. Now on the Patriots side, Jimmy Garoppolo, 24 of 33 for 264, eight yards per attempt, one TD. It went to Chris Hogan, no picks, only two sacks. As he said after the game, still some room for improvement. But to go into Arizona and to win in your first start without the likes of Rob Gronkowski, especially, that's really impressive when you look at what Garoppolo was able to do. Just avoided costly mistakes, played within himself, and got the job done. James White, 5 for 40 on 7 targets. Amendola, 3 for 48 on 4. Played fewer snaps than Malcolm Mitchell, for what it's worth, so keep a close eye on that. Mm-hmm. Chris Hogan hauled in that TD catch, 3 for 60 on 4 targets and a score. And Edelman, 7 for 66 on 7 targets. It was really the, the Garrett Blunt show offensively. 22 carries, 70 yards, and a TD. He lost a fumble, but... It just seems like he's a player that Bill Belichick has a lot of confidence in right now. Yeah, I mean, the fumble was Frosty Rucker basically coming in with a perfectly aimed hit helmet to football ball out. Even Belichick can't knock Blunt for this too much. I think we're going to see a lot of LeGarrette Blunt, uh, especially during this Tom Brady suspension, just uh, to, to be able to pound away at defenses. And, and I know Belichick likes to switch it up week to weeks. Every once in a while, he'll have his finesse back, take the lead. But when you've got a young, uh, slightly inexperienced quarterback like Garoppolo, it helps to call a lot of those bruising run plays to LeGarrette Blunt. Hopefully punishing the defense later on Edelman is normal self I mean seven for seven very efficient excellent PPR non-PPR and not necessarily so great and uh, yeah the, the Amendola thing was interesting Amendola was returning punts in that game uh, so that usually you reserve that role for a receiver maybe a little bit further down on the depth chart there but but overall I think uh, I mean LeGarrette Blunt's going to be a, a pretty decent asset here as we uh, move through the rest of this Tom Brady suspension and and that'll be a player to watch and, and then and then after that you know a lot of things can happen So let's take a look quickly at these two Monday night games. I mean, Pittsburgh on the road in Washington. I might be making a mistake in thinking that Washington is not very good. I mean, they might be a good enough offense, especially where they can get to a shootout with Pittsburgh and and do some damage. And maybe Pittsburgh is going to struggle without Martavis Bryant and Le'Veon Bell. We saw D'Angelo Williams run it really effectively, though, last year. So I think the running game is going to be fine. It's just a matter of getting enough separation for Antonio Brown maybe like the Packer problem last year do they have a deep threat whether it's Sammy Coates or Marcus Wheaton who can stretch the field and give Brown plenty of room to work underneath yeah I avoided Brown and Daly this week just because of the Josh Norman factor I think he is I mean I don't think anyone's going to necessarily get in Antonio Brown's head and I think there's a good chance Brown has he could even have 80 to 100 yard game but uh, the Norman factor is going to possibly keep him in check a little bit just because the Steelers again not no other real wide receiver threat to be concerned about a lot of unknowns I don't know if it's going to be Wheaton or Coates or even Eli Rogers and then Jesse James as the tight end the outlaw uh, I guess we'll see here I, I'm I'm relying on James he was my replacement for the Gronk owner but I don't think I can get 50 points from him that I need to win so that was a tough one for me should be uh, an, an intriguing double header I'm ready to roll tonight Interesting thing, too, is that Marcus Wheaton was officially ruled out for this game, so we maybe will see a lot more Sammy Coates. We'll probably see a good amount of Eli Rogers in the slot, perhaps some Darius Hayward Bay as well. But this is a golden opportunity for Sammy Coates to earn the trust of his quarterback and the coaching staff. If he can emerge tonight, that would be a huge storyline as we look at receiver replacements for the likes of Keenan Allen, again, who's feared to have suffered a torn ACL in the Chargers opener, really just a, a, the latest in a long list of just bad luck injuries. I mean, a lacerated kidney last year for Keenan Allen, yeah. torn ACL this year, uh, just really tough blow for the Chargers and for Allen himself. Now, the last thing I want to get to, of course, Rams, Niners. This is a game that being the second game of the night and me becoming more of a morning guy this time of year, I feel like there's about a 10% chance I'm awake when the final whistle blows in that game. Uh, you know what? I'm probably going to go this strategy. Post-work nap, wake up, watch football until 1, one 2 in the morning, whatever it takes here. I'll be ready for that. So uh, The nap's a good power move to watch that entire game. I mean, Carlos I mean, Hyde should be okay. That helps quite a bit. I've got the Rams' defense, if anything. That's the only daily shares I'm really remaining. I think I have one lineup with D'Angelo in it. I want to see how much Torrey Smith gets targeted because I don't really see anybody else other than Vance McDonald being a viable pass catcher in week one. Maybe it's Jeremy Curley, Rod Street, or some of the guys they traded for eventually. But yeah. We got asked Torrey Smith or Matt Jones tonight for a flex spot, and that was really tough. And they both have a lot 
of question marks because we really don't know what the what the role in the offense is going to be for San Francisco. I ended up saying Matt Jones, he's he's questionable, but that questionable designation is going to be quite meaningless. He he's back to full participant, shed the no contact jersey. So I I think Matt Jones maybe it, it, again over that, but it, it's really close. You, it's only a half point PPR the specific question. So maybe if it was a full point PPR, that could be enough to uh, move towards Smith, who's really more of a chunky yardage guy. So not necessarily PPR, but real tough to line my one Matt Jones. Begrudgingly, I think I would go Matt Jones too, but I I don't feel strongly exactly. about not feeling that one. great about either option. No, definitely not. And uh, yeah, that's going to be one of those games that. You know, with with Washington, I'm keeping an eye on how they split the carries between Jones and Rob Kelly. It just seems like Kelly's a player they like. And going into the year, as draft season started, I was going after Keith Marshall as a fade for Jones. So I tried to pick up Rob Kelly in a few leagues over the course of the week. Got him for nothing. Didn't have to pay up in fab to get him. Just to see what happens. If Matt Jones comes out, doesn't look good, isn't healthy, can't take the contact, coughs up the ball... I don't think he's necessarily safe as a starter, and exactly. Kelly just seems like the next in line mm-hmm. to replace him. I don't, I don't know if that means a lot for Kelly because this could be a team that has to throw it 35 or 40 times on a regular basis, but if you're desperate for running back help, Rob Kelly seems like a spec ad right now in leagues where he's available just to see what happens in the early weeks of the season. Might be the guy you cut come Wednesday as you make your moves. I'm also trying to look at Chris Thompson to see if he fits into that role, if it's just third third downs or if it's more than that, and how many times he gets targeted in the offense. It's uh, someone who I have some shares of in best ball and a late-round flyer, uh, again, banking as a hedge against Matt Jones. Absolutely. Now, if you got questions for us to answer in a future episode, let us know on Twitter. He's at jakeski52. I'm at Derek Van Riper. That's going to wrap things up for today's episode of the Rotowire Fantasy Football Podcast, sponsored by NoHalftime.com. Jake and Eric are back to you with a waiver wire episode on Tuesday. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.